Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. This week's episode kicks off two back-to-back episodes with two guests. While two guest conversations can be tricky to maneuver, the folks in these episodes, well, they were totally pro. But first, we should tell you a little bit about Behavioral Grooves. We launched this podcast three years ago this month, and with more than 175 episodes behind us, we are still exploring our mission of trying to help people understand why we do what we do. We didn't really know what we were getting into back then, but we now have listeners in over 120 countries and some very loyal ones in the UK, Australia, Canada, Germany, Denmark, and other Nordic countries. Yeah, we want to give you a special shout out to those in the US, in the states where our biggest numbers of listeners are coming from, including New York, California, Texas, and of course, our own state of Minnesota. Go Gophers. (laughs) We just wouldn't exist if it wasn't for people like you opening up your podcatcher and checking out an episode like this one. We think it's important to share the stories of great researchers, insightful authors, iconic thought leaders, practitioners, and even some accidental behavioral scientists. We do this because their work can help us understand how we show up in our daily lives. Uh, Through our relaxed conversations, we give our guests a comfortable environment to share their stories and are always pleased with the interesting tales that they have to share. And where else do behavioral science researchers get to talk about music? I mean, virtually every one of our guests lights up when we start the conversation about what's on their playlist. And we often discover that talking about music acts as a gateway to interesting insights into who they are. You just can't get that anywhere else but behavioral grooves. No, you can't, Tim, but I'm not sure they're lighting up for the reasons you might think they are. It's not necessarily about a love of music. It may be, just might be a little bit of anxiety. <laughs> well, I, I was pretty sure it was excitement every time. All right. All right. Uh, not so sure about that. But it does remind me of when we talked with Roy Baumeister in episode 171 about how he played saxophone. Um, actually, it was trumpet. Sorry about that, Roy. Then guitar. And now piano. He's a freaking father of research of the self. And he learned to play these instruments while teaching full time, conducting more research than most mortals would ever dream of and publishing more than 30 books. I, I don't, I can't learn a musical instrument and I do one hundredth of that. Well, that links me over to our conversation with John Barge in episode 155 about his secret desire to have dinner with Robert Plant, the lead singer from Led Zeppelin. And I remember having an interesting debate about that as well. Or how about when we talked with Caroline Webb, the author of How to Have a Good Day in episodes 33 and 159, and she talks about setting an alarm for 6 p.m. on workdays, turning off her computer, and dancing to 70s disco music. That was in episode 159, folks, by the way. And and that's just some of the great musical conversations we've had. You've, you've converted me over, Tim. I'm glad, Kurt. But part of us bringing this up is to remind you that we have a back catalog that includes great conversations with researchers, including Linda Babcock, George Lowenstein, Francesca Gino, Robert Cialdini, and Christina Bicchieri. We've talked with authors, including one of our favorites, Annie Duke, Chris Matischik, 
and Barry Ritholtz. We've had guests from Africa, Europe, Asia, South America, the Middle East, and Australia, all over the damn world. So I guess what we're trying to say is this. Behavioral Grooves is more than just this one episode, and we encourage you to take a minute or maybe even a few minutes and explore the back catalog today. Okay. And speaking of this one episode, we should get to our guests. Good idea. As Tim said at the opening, this episode and the next one are interviews with two guests, and each pair are co-authors. Today, we are bringing you our conversation with Matt Johnson and Prince Guman, the authors of Blindsight, The Mostly Hidden Ways Marketing Shapes Our Brains. Now, in the book, Matt and Prince combine their backgrounds in neuroscience and marketing to bring readers new insights into the ethical combination of these two fields by unveiling the unseen forces that brands and marketers use to influence our daily lives. And then in our conversation, Matt and Prince introduced us to a new term in neuromarketing that they call mid-liminal. Not subliminal, but mid-liminal. Yeah, yeah. And you'll have to listen in and check that out because it's very cool. We also talked about the natural partnership between neuroscience and marketing, and we covered one of our favorite linguistic games, the Kiki and Booba experiments. Finally, we spent a fair amount of time on the ethical application of neuromarketing. Honestly, we had a blast with these guys, which included conversations on basketball, my favorite sport, (laughs) and music, your favorite sport, or I guess it's not really a sport, but, you know, whatever it is. I'm fine with calling it a sport. It was a blast and they're doing cool work. And you might have already known this, but I was surprised to learn that it takes nine years to get a PhD in neuroscience and at least five more to become a marketing director. So that's like 14 years of effort to get the knowledge that Prince and Matt have and shared with us. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And I think your estimate might be a bit conservative, at least for my PhD. So (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe that just might be me, but that's a, you know, we're not going to go down that road. That was a little revealing right there. But the reason that that's relevant is that Prince and Matt are hosting the world's first neuromarketing certification boot camp. It will be held live on the 4th through the 6th of December, 2020. That means it's coming up shortly. And they will be condensing tons of lessons into a three-day boot camp to share the best practices in neuromarketing. And best of all, it will be taught by them, a neuroscientist and a marketing director. Very cool. And it comes with a certification. So if you're interested, see the link in the show notes and make sure that you use the code GROOVES, G-R-O-O-V-E-S, to get $500 off of the registration fee. Matt and Prince were very kind and generous in offering that up. This fantastic discount code is only, only available to listeners of Behavioral Grooves, by the way. So you need to listen to the entire episode in order for it to work. Is that how that works, Tim? It's oh, like, wait, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. Anyway, we encourage you, please go check it out. And if you're interested, sign up. Okay. Um, is there anything else we need to talk about before we can just get on to our conversation with Matt and Prince? I think that's it for now. So we ask you to sit back, put your feet up, and with a fine glass of ethical neuromarketing, uh, enjoy our conversation with Matt Johnson and Prince Guman. Matt and Prince, welcome to Behavior Grooves. Hey, good to be here, you guys. Thanks so much for having us. 
We are glad to have you here, and we're going to get started with the speed round. So uh, 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 we'll just we'll put this out there. See who see who responds first. Would you rather learn a new instrument or a new language? New, Ooh, I would. I would rather learn five. a new language. <laughs> yeah. Matt, you go, Matt. Matt, you first. Yeah, I, I would take the other one. Um, so I know uh, no instruments, and I know a couple languages, but also you know would would like to learn some new ones. So uh, I would definitely take on a new language. All right, and Prince, the opposite. Uh, I know five languages, <laughs> and and uh, I don't. I know exactly zero instruments, and and I've been told that I'm tone deaf, so time to change all that. <laughs> so I would happily, and specifically either bass, guitar, or drums. Oh, there you oh, go. Very specific. Bass, all guitar, right. or drums. Okay, that might be an interesting question to cover later. But all okay. right. Yeah. Okay, so would you rather have dinner with your favorite sports star or favorite musician? All right, now we'll, uh, we'll reverse this. All right, Prince, sports star? Sports star, LeBron James. All right, oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. And, Wait, aren't you from the the Bay Area? Aren't you like a uh, Steph Curry guy? I'm, 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 look, I, I appreciate <laughs> all athletes. Uh, San Diego is where I claim as my home. Okay, and and, uh, and I grew up loving uh, Nick Van Exel way before Kobe joined the team. Some yeah. of my old school Lakers guys, as far as back <laughs> as my memory serves me. So Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, and if you're like, who the hell are these guys? That's how old I am. Oh, I, I I'm a huge NBA fan, so I'm oh. I'm I'm with oh. you. Van Exel is he, oh man. Crazy, yeah. crazy good. All right, Matt, your yeah. your turn on this. Yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go. Sports athlete as well. And uh, for me, that would be Clay Thompson. I mean, he's okay. just uh, as as a, a Barry native, as as a Warriors fan. Uh, Steph is great, obviously. Draymond's a character, but but Clay just he'd, he'd be a fun person to have dinner with for sure. I, I, I agree. I think he would be uh, of those. I, although Steph is fascinating to me, and just with you know talking about his father and everything else, but but Clay just has a personality that I think is. Uh, it'd, it'd be interesting to see what he's really like if this is all just like this persona that he puts out there or not. So, all right, yeah. this is supposed to be a speed round, and we are getting way too. We're, we're going way <laughs> off on tangents. Like I, I got to ask, no one ever brings up a football star or a baseball star. It's always NBA. Are they just smarter? I, I, that, I maybe that's a that's a totally separate conversation. But. Well, uh, I mean, so, so go ahead, Prince. Yeah, I was. Uh, I mean, I am. I am biased against Major League Baseball, not baseball <laughs> as a sport, but Major League Baseball. Okay, yeah. and and football. Uh, there's just so many sports you can follow, and, and and unfortunately, I stopped following football. So that's my bias. That's why I don't really jump to that, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, but I think American football, it, it is, you know, such a popular sport here, but I, I feel like there's not the sort of larger than life figures and everyone wears a helmet and, and it's, it's just, you know, doesn't have the same star power that the NBA has, at least not right now. Yeah. It's I, also, I, you know, NBA playoffs and it's, it's you know, we'll watch it right now. So, yeah. you know, it's also yeah. benefits from that trend. Well, yeah. it is it is one of those things that, that you have a 50 plus players on a, on, a, on a NFL football team. MLB is in 20s or 30s, you know, basketball mm -hmm. team. Basically, you have eight to 10 players who are actually playing and, and they, they don't have helmets and they they do have that star power and you get to the, the NBA has done a really good job in marketing their players. And so it's, it's, there's a personality based piece of that. So, all right. Yeah. So we, we okay. answered your question there, Tim. <laughs> awesome. All right. I'm just curious. All right. So, uh, all right. I think we're going to start with Matt on this. Would you prefer to travel with a set itinerary or no itinerary? Oh, I am. I am absolutely a no itinerary guy. I feel like my my day to day life is is pretty structured. I'm a to do list kind of guy, and then when I take a proper vacation, I'm all about whimsical 
ness. I, I just like to sort of go with the flow there. So definitely without an itinerary. Fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Prince? Same. Vagabonding Same. is, I feel like, in my DNA. And, and there's nothing about vagabonding and planning that is compatible. So now just throw me in a new country, a new city, and just let me go soak it in. Be a well, with, and with five languages under your belt, my guess is that you could get around pretty well in a, in a large part of the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't speak them well. Two weeks in a country, and then they come back. That's how it yeah. is. At least the present tense comes back. When you get all crazy <laughs> with tenses, like, ah, uh, throws you off. Yeah. But, but, but you can probably ask You can probably ask where the bathroom is and, and, and for a beer. And those are the exactly. two things that, that I, 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 yeah. The trick <laughs> is you, always yes. to learn thank you and please and whatever country you're in and it'll get you place and beer. Yes, you're right. Dos survey support favor. There you go. All right. <laughs> all right. So this is going to be a free for all. So I'm, I'm not, we're not going to, we're not going to sign us to, to either. Yeah. Jump ball. There you go. Um, for, for both of you. So free will, do we have it or do we not? Oh man. We, uh, we, we certainly feel as though we have free will. Uh, we, we certainly operate under the, the, uh, intuitive assumption that we do, uh, but I think when we examine free will from the standpoint of, of science and, and physics, uh, I think the support, the empirical support for free will, uh, I think is really at a vanishing point at this stage. Yeah, I think, you know, we ask ourselves two simple questions. Does persuasion exist? Yeah. Yes. Uh, do nudges exist? Yes. And at what point are we going to have good enough persuasion and good enough nudges where we start to truly think about free will? as a, uh, not a, uh, not a binary concept, you know, like it's, it's, it's there. We've seen it. We've seen it happen again and again. Uh, so no, I, I don't think, I don't think free will as the masses, as the, as, as even some of the academics, um, uh, some of the students, sorry, think doesn't exist. <laughs> how does that play? How does that play into neuromarketing then? Ooh, Matt, you start, you start with this one and I'll, and I'll take you back off that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a it's it's a great question to examine in the context of of marketing, neuromarketing, and in persuasion. So, um, I think whether or not we have free will or not, that there's clearly a difference in terms of the type of of psychological predicates that led to that decision. So, whether or not we were truly free to choose otherwise, it's very different if you're coerced into a decision or if you deliberately analyzed it, even if your deliberative processes are predicated on previous neuronal activity, which are predicated on previous neural activity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, going back to, uh, you know, the Big Bang, effectively. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the psychological experience that you're appealing to as a marketer matters. And from the standpoint of, of you as the, the feeling like autonomous being matters, but whether or not all of this exists within a, a free will system, uh, I, I think it, it doesn't, but it also, I think, doesn't make a huge amount of difference in terms of how we should approach it. Yeah, well put. I, I'm, I'll take the marketing perspective on it. You know, we, we live and die by conversion rates more and more. We live and die by metrics. But what are we really talking about there, right? And at what point, uh, I think, you know, per persuasion is an asymptote. It's never going to be a guaranteed if X stimulus will get Y response. But as a marketer, I can tell you we're getting better. Right? We might never have a guaranteed moment, but we're certainly getting better in psychographics, data, every heartbeat, every step you take, all this stuff is thrown up in the cloud and the AI is getting better and better. So ultimately you're going to get closer to better conversion rates for the, you know, using, using marketing terms here. And I think that is chipping away at it. 
Yeah. Well, and and we'll definitely want to come back to that uh, aspect of, you know, what's the ethical considerations of that moving forward. But before we get there, uh, let's, because you, you guys just wrote a book, right? And, and so it, the, the book talks about that persuasion aspect and mm-hmm. and some of the, you know, subliminal and, and mid-liminal priming that goes on and, and various different aspects of this. So can you give for our listeners just a quick overview of of the book, Blind, Blind Sight, um, and, and tell people, you know, what we were trying to do and, and what is the premise of the book? The book was a labor of love. It's a message that Matt and I 100% thought needed to be told. And, and, and we believe this down to our bones. And it's not a book that one person can write because my background has been marketing actionable application my whole life. Um, I was uh, fortunate enough to work for startups early on in a leadership role, which meant I could test things a lot faster. And what I did since my first job as a marketer, go read a ton of abstracts until my head wanted to explode and a ton of pop psych books and then go down the references and figure out what what they're pulling from and then come up with tests myself. And I was able to apply that to small startups, medium-sized startups, to a publicly traded company. And now I'm teaching all that stuff, right? So I came from, just give me enough theory so I can find a testable hypothesis. Let me go test it. That's been my jam forever. Yeah, and then I met Matt. Who Matt? <laughs> Matt's the other way around too. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, so I'm I'm the complete opposite. So if if Prince <laughs> is sitting down and and reading abstracts, that that's torture for him. He he'd rather be doing almost anything but reading academic papers. And this is the sort of thing that uh, I genuinely enjoy. I mean, I so I when I entered my. Uh, my, my, my PhD, I got the opportunity to get really, really in depth and into the minutia and into the nuance of, of the science and the scientific process. And uh, I loved it. I spent most of my mid-20s in labs and libraries, uh, really diving into the, the science of, I, my PhD was in cognitive psychology. And you get very, very myopic into your focus. And, and you get into such detail, we really can't have a conversation with like anybody outside the 10 people that you're involved in, in terms of your lab, it's so, so, so specialized. But I, I loved it. I mean, I, I come from it from a completely opposite angle, which is I'm just genuinely curious about why it is that we do what we do. I'm genuinely curious about how the brain supports all of this from the level of, of biology. And, and really, through most of my career, didn't necessarily want to have or, or think about, you know, a clear application there is really just driven purely by this intrinsic motivation and, and curiosity. And so then in, in meeting Prince, it, it was it was really this sort of like yin yang approach where uh, he didn't want to have all of the, the, you know, the burden of reading all these abstracts and didn't want to have the science. He just wants, you know, what do I need to know in order to apply it? And I come from the opposite orientation. And so the book is really a culmination of these two perspectives. It's really understanding the neuroscience that, that sort of drives us within the consumer worlds. And then Prince coming at it from the standpoint of, of marketing, really how do marketers utilize this? How do they intuitively converge onto these findings? How do they test for it? And you know, really, how do we give people a, uh, a neuroscientifically informed perspective of their own consumer experience? So I think certainly marketers are getting get great value out of it. They they already have in terms of the conversations that we've had with practitioners, um, but really it was written for everybody. We we have you know sort of self help fields. We have developmental psychology. We have uh, lots of of different sort of specialized psychological fields. We don't really have consumer psychology as as a window into our own experience. And and this book was was really written to fill that gap. Prince talked about uh, or mentioned that it, it it's a book that couldn't be written alone. 
Why do you think the two of you were perfectly suited or best suited to write this book? Uh, I think we have put in our proverbial 10,000 hours in our respective fields. <laughs> and we have, I think, you know, I think Matt is underselling how he, you know, like he, he has his thesis up on a wall is what they do. And he put a $50 bill there and he knows that no one's going to read it. So, so although he is 100% research focused, he's got a $50 bill hanging out there. And, 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 and the point is that he understood his curiosity, but he's also like, what's, what am I going to do with all this knowledge? I need some, I, you know, like it, it's hidden in abstracts and scientific journals, right? So the reason why I feel confident that it takes two people to write it is I needed someone like Matt to speak to me like a mere mortal. Right. And, 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 and that's not to, to put down any academics, right? It, it's your world. It's your vernacular. And obviously I can read abstracts, but with Matt and I sitting together, I can explain business case studies to him in 30 seconds or less. And I can take his perspective and apply it to mine. And he can take what marketers are doing intentionally and apply it to his. And we happen to bond on basketball and old school hip hop music. And the chemistry was there. And we came from two different worlds of 12 to 15 years, just digging our lives there. And then it just merged at the same time. And we both like teaching and eventually blind sight came out of it. You know, like, it was never like, let's write a book. It was always, this is fascinating. Let's see if you can teach a class on it. We did. And let's see if you can write a book on it. And let's write a book, not for marketing students or business students. Let's write a book for people who are, who, who are just curious about this stuff. And yes, Matt put it perfectly. You're looking at a mirror. You're Through your purchases, you're going to get a view of your own behavior that is beyond your purchases. And that's what Blindsight does. So help us understand a little bit then inside of the book. And I know we, we talked a mm -hmm. little bit subliminal, midliminal, but there's, there's a lot more uh, in, in this book. What, what are you, what are some of the main themes that, that you're trying to identify and bring forth to, to that public? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things, well, one of the things we wanna talk about is what is marketing really? Right. Mm. And, and it's, it's this, it's, and I have two answers to that. And I want to get to that when we get down to ethics shortly, but to start off with a brand or marketing is what exists between subjectivity and objectivity. Right. And a simple, easy, digestible statement like that is extracted out over the course of 12 chapters and each chapter is its own thing. And so we talk about, you know, one of the things we, we talk about is pleasure minus pain equals purchase. So we take mm -hmm. science around pleasure, the science around pain, and what it takes to close and put that together. Um, we talk about memory. The only, chap the only theme that has more than one chapter dedicated to it is memory, because we talk about encoding, uh, retrieval, and how everything we know about memory is wrong. And we can go down that rabbit hole, right? Um, we talk about mid-liminal. We think people here neuromarketing and they think, oh, you're going to control my brain. You're going to flash something really fast between my, sure. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's questionable in its efficacy and what's not questionable is mid-liminal and we'll get into that later. Um, and we get into uh, what makes us like things, right? And why is it that we have Old Town Road being remixed as hip hop and now it's the biggest thing ever? Why is it that Shades of Grey about kink and BDSM was a best-selling book after Harry Potter? I think it surpassed Harry Potter for the two years it was out, right? Why, 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 why? And there's a neuroscientific and a marketing explanation for that. And there's a chapter for each of these things. Fascinating. That is fantastic. So, so let's start uh, talking a little bit about mid-liminal. Mid a lot of people are familiar with subliminal, 
right? And I love how you, you you start that portion of the story by going back to that 1957 story about James Vickery, the theater owner. So can you can you tell that story and and why how that story leads into the mid liminal discussion? Yeah. So in, in colloquial circles, if you bring up the topic of, of subliminal marketing, they instantly have this sort of story that comes to mind. Oh, yeah. Wasn't there this sort of movie theater that, that, that you know, existed in the 50s or 60s? And they flashed Coke on the screen. Everybody ran up and bought a Coke. You flashed popcorn on the screen. Everybody bought popcorn. It was these little brief, you know, messages. And that that general story is this you know really interesting anecdote around subliminal marketing turns out not to be true it turns out that there there was actually a person who uh, this story revolves around named James Vickery, but he himself uh, was a very crafty marketer and he was trying to earn some publicity and, and earn a name for himself and differentiate in, uh, in, in among movie theaters. And so he made up the story about how he could control people's purchases by flashing uh, really brief items on the screen there. Turns out not to be the case at all. Didn't actually do this. He actually admitted in later interviews to making this whole thing up way after, of course, he benefited from all of the, uh, you know, revenue and people flocking to the store to see what uh, the movie theater, see what all the fuss is about. Um, so that is is sort of the, the anchor by which most people in the general public have about subliminal marketing. It turns out, though, that when you actually break down the science, there is actually evidence that subliminal messaging does influence our behavior and can influence our, our thoughts and emotions as well. So if you have, and it's best understood in the visual domain. And so if you are to, and it depends on the context, and it depends exactly on what type of stimuli you're sending, but if you, you have this sort of narrow window between about 30 milliseconds and 50 milliseconds, where if you send imagery or, or some type of, of simple text, it is effectively too fast for our conscious visual system to process. And nonetheless, still take it into the eyes and actually goes into uh, our slower evolutionary, slower visual system, uh, which goes into subcortical structures. And there it can influence thoughts, emotions, and ultimately behavior outside of our awareness. And there is actually some evidence that, that there is an effect size there. It turns out that it's not nearly as strong as James Vickery had had purported. So if you were to, you know, if I were to flash this on our, our computer screens right now, nobody's gonna get up and buy a Coca-Cola. But if you're already a little bit thirsty, if uh, it's a really hot day and you're deciding, oh, should I get a Lipton IC and I, should I get a Coca-Cola? I have both of them in the fridge. If I sort of nudge you just slightly with this subliminal message for Coke, uh, then you're more likely to choose that over Lipton. So it has a little bit of an effect size, but not nearly as much as as what James Vickery had uh, as sort of purported. Um, but I think the, the really interesting thing when it comes to subliminal messaging is there is this threshold, and this also represents a legal threshold as well. We have laws against subliminal messaging, um, but really awareness itself is a continuum. We're exposed to all sorts of stimuli and factors which we can potentially be aware of, uh, but usually don't figure into our, our deliberative conscious decision-making calculus. And that's really what this, this whole concept of mid-limital messaging is. You walk into a restaurant and there is a, uh, a certain type of music playing. There, there is a, a texture to the napkins that you are feeling. All of these you know, small sort of sensory cues, controlled, controlled studies have shown that if you play uh, a certain type of music in a wine shop, for example, 
example, you're actually more likely to buy, let's say if it's French music, then you buy French wine. If it's German music, you buy German wine. There's, it's a small effect size, but it sort of nudges you in this direction. And nobody at the end of the study has any idea that the music was even playing and that it influenced their decision. So this is this very sort of gray area of mid-liminal marketing. And we go we go a lot deeper into that in blindside, but I think I think it's worth it to to underline what midliminal is, right? It's it's not a it's not a used vernacular yet. So Matt's at her best. Subliminal is best explained through vision, right? There's there's other ways to practice subliminal, but it's typically 30 to 50 milliseconds or faster means that it will enter your visual field, but you're not gonna be conscious of it, right? And this is that proverbial blink and you have no idea what happened, right? That's subliminal. It is underneath your conscious awareness. Midliminal does not play speed games. It's actually the opposite. It's hiding in plain sight. And yet, just like subliminal, I would argue more than subliminal and data and research has shown more than subliminal, it nudges your behavior. And Matt mentioned, you know, wine store, French music equals French wine, but smells. They've been yeah. able to uh, test uh, different types of smells um, uh, peppermint smell and video gamers, not, and you know, esports is like the hottest thing right now. You know, uh, we're over here playing basketball and there's guys making hundreds of thousands of dollars playing NBA 2K. Um, but they, they were, they, they proved, uh, accuracy and certain performance variables in video games. And all they did was put a group of video gamers in a room that had peppermint smell and a group of video gamers in a room that did not have a peppermint smell. And of course, peppermint smell room just killed it. And, and, the, and the, the creepiest part is they had no idea. They didn't even notice the smell, right? Yeah. And you've seen that over and over. Um, what was the smell for the restaurants, Matt, that got people to sit longer uh, and lavender. lavender? Lavender. So lavender, lavender restaurants, right? Like that sort of stuff. And that's midliminal. And that's been measured more over and verified independently than subliminal. That's why midliminal well, you, you, is- you know, yeah. You have the Cinnabon effect, right? You walk into yeah. a mall and you smell the Cinnabon and, and you know, you oh, start yeah. salivating, right? There, there's that. Uh, and you brought up in, in the book too, I thought that, you know, again, some of the branding that has been done, FedEx with the arrow that is built into yeah. inside of, of that logo, Amazon with the, with the smiley from A to Z. Again, they're there for people to see. They're not, they're not being flashed in front of people's eyes quickly, but they're also this underlying components that are impacting our attitudes, potentially impacting our attitudes about these brands in, in a way that, again, uh, intentionally or not, they are going to have an impact on, on how we view them. Um, so from that perspective, um, one of the other things that you talk about in your book, and one of the things that Tim and I have talked about, and uh, just it was, you know, love the fact that you guys are bringing up Kiki and Booba, right? <laughs> and so, uh, again, most of the people, listeners, if they're your, your regular listeners of, of the show, you, you, you know about this. But for those that, that haven't, talk a little bit about Kiki and Booba. Yeah, so it's this really interesting effect within linguistics. So we think that all the meaning that we have towards words and language is actually within the learned meaning, right? You know what hand means because you've learned this over time as, as a native English speaker. Um, but it turns out that the actual sounds of a word influence how we think about that sound. And so they did this famous study, and it's since been replicated numerous times in, in different languages. They actually did this with animals. They've done this dogs as well. It's a very, very robust finding. And uh, they have these two uh, images. 
One is this very sort of, uh, it looks like a, a if you spilled milk or something. It's just like the this very bulbous uh, sort of image, uh, circular image. And the other one is this sort of like uh, very sort of sharp looking spike. And they just go up to people and they ask them, all right, which one is a boba and which one is a kiki these two words don't exist in the english language you don't really have any uh any any semantic associations with them per se be asked you know which one do you think is boba and which i think is kiki and very very consistently people think the sharp image is kiki people think the uh the, the sort of rounded image is a boba and it just sounds round the word boba yeah. just sounds round. The word kiki sounds sharp. So it speaks to this sort of idea that we might have these these sort of cross-sensory metaphors that we use both to understand the visual world and also there, there's analogs within linguistics as well. Yeah. And so from a marketing perspective, uh, you know, how is that, how, how can that be used? And I know from a branding perspective, we've had some conversations around this and very specifics and like, picking out a brand name and various different aspects of that. So uh, any thought on that, Prince? Yeah, lots. I mean, in the, in the pre-COVID world, uh, <laughs> Matt and I were all in on experiences, right? Um, you know, we have more products than we have needs to fill and differentiation is such a big deal in marketing and branding and experience in retail. Um, and, and Matt and I firmly believe that creating a differentiated experience help sales, right? So, you know, a, 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 a nasty example of that is walking by an Abercrombie and Fitch and sneezing your face off because they're required to spray that cologne every 20, <laughs> 20 minutes. That's what you have to do. But nonetheless, they're creating a differentiated experience that is down to your senses, not just a logo, not just a word, not just the name of two people and whatever that means. Um, I'm, I'm willing to bet more people know the smell of Abercrombie and Fitch versus whatever the hell Abercrombie and Fitch those two guys did. <laughs> Right, and that's and that's part of the value there. Uh, so there's that, right? There, there's there's creating this experience, but um, and this is where uh, we go back to subjectivity, objectivity, right? Um, we go back to really thinking about this critically. Is this manipulation or is this adding value, right? And I think we can go down the ethics route shortly. I do want to say this though. Um, when done properly, it is the ultimate form of flirtation, right? To, 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 for, for a, again, as a marketer, all I want to do is create amazing products, make amazing brand experiences that charm the shit out of my customers. And as a consumer, and we're all consumers, we probably have different degrees of consumption. As a consumer, I want to fall in love with a product, right? Like I, I want to defend iOS over Android or Canon over Nikon with photography or Lakers versus doesn't matter who, because they're the best basketball team ever, right? Like oh, I want to oh. defend, I, I want to defend that. And, and, and that's part of the charm, right? And I think, I think what we've lost in what's been the brave new world, the wild west of AI and tech is certain product makers are taking advantage of um, the lack of understanding of data and AI from the perspective of the consumers. But I'm of the belief that that will eventually change. And I'm of the belief that as you know, innovation, consumers catch up, innovation, consumers catch up. And as consumers catch up to this, I think it's going to be a healthier relationship. And that's at least my personal uh, driver behind writing this book, behind everything I do as a neuromarketer and a, and, and a neuroscience strategist is I want to bridge that gap, not make it wider with trust issues. So using neuromarketing 
and we're just giving you one example because we're talking about mid-liminal right now, you can actually provide more ex a better experience for your consumers and connect with them better. And consumers, as long as they trust you, not doing shady stuff, they're gonna love you more for it. So there's there's an investment in doing it, and of course, ethically, but there's an investment in doing this and where both parties walk away charmed and if, dare I say, in love with the flirtation. And that's part of it. You go to a pop-up store or a pop-up restaurant, that's neuromarketing, baby. And it's amazing. It's different from going to a regular restaurant or a regular Adidas store, you know? That's 100% neuromarketing. Yeah. So let's follow the ethics thing because this is okay. uh, this has uh, been a, a ongoing theme for Kurt and I for uh, for as long as we've we've been talking on the podcast because mm -hmm. it, it's it's really important. What differentiates adding value from manipulation? It's a good it's a good question. So good question. I think taking taking a, a slight step back there, I think Prince, you want to talk about you know defining yeah. marketing along the lines of value? Yes. Yeah. So. You know, I think we tend to get caught up in what marketing is, right? Uh, Philip Kotler, the dude who literally wrote the book on marketing, right? His textbook is taught in undergrad and postgrad. Um, he defines marketing a whole different way. Matt and I came up with a very distilled, simple example uh, definition of marketing, trading value, okay? Me, as a marketer, as a company, as a seller, I want to provide as much value to you as possible in order to get value back in return, right? So piece by piece, Back in the day, it was simply a safe place to shop and trade goods, right? And then it became a cleaner place to shop. But then someone else opened up next to you who was cleaner than you and had someone playing, I don't know, bass guitar uh, <laughs> and, and had, a, had a bigger inventory. Okay, then you have to find additional places of paying value before you ever get the sale, right? And at the end of the day, from a buyer's perspective, it's money initially, right? Fast forward to 2020, I mean, you guys are all gotten beat up with referral codes. You guys have also probably practiced in, not probably, for, for certain, you have practiced in word of mouth. Uh, that was 100% you providing value to the product and the company and the brand without actually getting anything in return. Uh, User-generated content. Anytime you write a review on Amazon, you basically work for Amazon. Anytime you write a review on Airbnb, anytime you write a review on Yelp, insert name here. User-generated content is a buyer providing value without getting any monetary return. So we are sort of just adapting to that core over time. And where it gets hairy with ethics is what I like to call covert or overt, right? Mm. Um, we as marketers are privileged and I think we need to recognize the privilege that we have. More often than not, we tend to have data on our consumers. And it, it's something even as simple as Google Analytics on your thousand person a week blog gives you more of a, a more optics than not, right? So with this privilege comes responsibility. And and there's ways to to be overt and covert. And I think when you're actually not being forthright, when you're not being transparent about what your action will result in, that's unethical. And when it is a, when you're adding value uh, uh, without being sneaky. And and we and we took this Fairly, I don't want to say nebulous, but not fully clear concept. We knew where we're going, and we put it into a research to see what people feel about that. And I think I think Matt, you should jump in there. Yeah. So we we've we've we wanted to to. I mean, this this question is is very near and dear to our, our hearts uh, as well. And so we wanted to sort of start this investigation really by looking at uh, what the sort of uh, intuitive ethics are of consumers. And really the, the biggest finding there is that consumers are uh, very, very consequentialist in their judgments. Um, we 
did a, a series of surveys where we looked at different marketing campaigns, different degrees of persuasive potency, and then also the consequences of these marketing campaigns. And even when we included the variable of subliminal marketing within the uh, the actual survey, people still were very, very consequentialist in their judgment. It didn't really matter how potent the uh, the campaign was. Didn't really matter what types of tactics they utilized, even if it was subliminal messaging, as long as the campaign was convincing them to do something which was in their best interest. So yeah. people were very, very consequentialist in their judgment. And so consequentialism, I think, is, is one important perspective. Uh, I think another very, very important perspective is consumer autonomy. And so whether or not we truly have free will, this is what started our, our whole conversation today, uh, there is clearly a difference between deciding autonomously and being coerced and, and not understanding the predicates of your decision. And we sort of break down this idea of uh, autonomous decision making. This has clear psychological uh, rudiments. And the two psychological rudiments are, one, you need to be aware of the factors which are ultimately influencing your decision. And, and that really is represented by the natural aversion that we have towards subliminal marketing. And that's why we don't like subliminal marketing, just it, it gives us that ew feeling, because how can you be free to decide something that you weren't even aware of in the first place. Uh, you're sitting down watching something on TV, uh, there's some image that comes flashed and you went and got a Coke, you didn't know why you did what you did and, and we just have a natural aversion. So that's number one in terms of supporting consumer autonomy is, is one, having awareness of the factors or having the potential to be aware of the factors which are influencing your decision. The second is our deliberative capacity. So not only do we have to be aware of the factors which are uh, influencing or potentially influencing our decision, but we need to have the deliberative capacity to be able to analyze and, and think critically about them. And this is also reflected in our existing ethical intuitions. This is why, for example, we don't like the idea of marketing aimed at children. Because from a, a neurodevelopmental perspective, the child lacks the, the full capacity to deliberate over the factors that they are being exposed to and to make a analytical, uh, critically mediated uh, decision. And, and so these are really the two foundations of autonomous uh, consumer decision making. And I think that's what really needs to be maintained within this ethical framework. I think uh, marketing tactics which subvert our autonomy either through awareness or through deliberation. Uh, these, I, I think, are, are on very sort of slippery ethical grounds. Yeah. Well, two, two things on that. So one, we, we interviewed Charlotte Blank, who is the chief behavior officer at Merits, and they had done some collaboration with some other researchers. And one of the things they found is that, uh, again, it comes back into some of this awareness and, and, and other pieces of this, where uh, when you get that that ad that all of a sudden pops up because you went and you you searched for shoes, right? And all of a sudden now you get 50 ads that that are about shoes in there and different things. And she said, um, you know, in those messages we we tend to and Tim, help me out if I'm if I'm messing this up. Uh, you know, if if we understand the reason uh, behind why we're seeing that ad, we, we we find those messages much more appealing to us versus if we're just seeing it and we're going, oh, they're trying to, in, you know, it, it's that uh, influence of of who is why are they why are we getting this and what's the reason? But if you say, oh, we saw that you were looking at shoes, 
And we thought that this would be a good, uh, you know, uh, shoe that you might want to, you might enjoy, right? If you even just saying that as to why you're actually seeing that ad can be very helpful from people accepting those ads as opposed to going, oh, that's creepy. Uh, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I, you know, and, and she said, it's even worse when you get uh, things that aren't necessarily associated where you're going in and you're buying something somewhere and somehow that, that data gets translated and all of a sudden uh, you're starting to see these ads, like you're going into a shoe store and buying shoes and now you're seeing ads for shoes that wasn't even online that you could see some any way of, of, of connecting those um, so that's that's one piece and so that's just more of just a commentary um, but I think the next piece of this and you guys talk a little bit about this in the book is you know when you get to the point where uh, AI and, and behavioral science get to be so robust and and we have so much data and we're able to pull that information and you, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica right and and what they were doing and again we can talk about the efficacy of, of how much that influenced the the result but the the idea behind that where you know you're being able to pull people's personality profiles and so understanding what are their fears what are their likes what are their different aspects from that personality research that we know and we can do that even better via likes on a Facebook page than people that have known us for years uh, and then marrying that with uh, you know really specific messaging that's going to people again that they don't understand why they're even feeling this way but we know that we're going to tap some un uncover you know some 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 uh, personality traits that are going to trigger them w where do we draw the line where, where do we get to this point uh, I'll take the I'll take a crack at the first part of it there Kurt um, I mean it let's dissect partially what happened with Cambridge. And this is not unique to Cambridge. Yeah. Um, if, if anything, they, up until they refused to release the data of people, they technically did not do anything illegal. So that is a failure on, on public policymakers, not only in the US, even Europe. And I think we're innovative in the US with products and you gotta, you gotta tip your hat towards, towards France and UK. They're more innovative than us when it comes to public policy and consumer protection. Either way, both failed. And because technically Cambridge didn't do anything illegal initially. What they did was they came up with, uh, what Game of Thrones character are you? What yeah. Harry Potter character are you, right? Um, and those were surveys on Facebook and little and, and little baby apps on the Facebook app store. And, and, uh, and based on that, they tied you into the big five or the ocean personality test. And that, Matt can tell you a lot more about it, but here's the gist of it. It is the, at the moment, the most scientifically valid uh, personality test. There's others that are great, but it's a, it's, it's a really easy one to plug into. They were able to take that and plug it in there. Now, the first thing that Matt said, right here, already violating that, right? So we, we, when we talk about, it, it, sidebar, when Matt and I decided to write this book, we had this, this conflict. We're like, we're giving this away. Right. If you read the book, there's no direct how to's, but it's a very obvious show of what's happening and, and with the science behind it. And we're like, we can't teach this stuff until we figure out the ethical piece. Right. Like we don't want to. We don't want to let it out and just let people go with it until it's like the, the proverbial Hippocratic oath, but for neuromarketing. So the swooshers that Matt quoted was was a big driver for that. And we did not want to do any master classes, any of that stuff. And so we're able to uh, really. It, 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 I hate to say indoctrinate, but talk about ethics, this whole thing. Um, yeah. But to go back to it, Matt's first point was, man, be transparent, it, you know, covert over. You're not actually caring about which Harry Potter character I am, you know? You're actually doing this whole other thing that you never explained to me, right? And 
And, and that's an issue. And I think one of the diagnoses of these is, 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 is the legal conversation, the, the legal stuff that we agree to terms and conditions. Uh, I've tried to read that. It, 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 I'd rather read abstracts. Uh, and, and, and so initially we're going to do what everyone else does and we're going to enjoy ourselves in doing it, which is pointing a finger at all of the shady companies that get lawyers who might as well be speaking Sanskrit to write these legalese, right? But secondly, especially in the era of free, why is that? Point the finger back at us. We're doing it, right? Um, we are uh, using Instagram, Facebook, Skype, all these products, WhatsApp, my gosh, the whole world uses WhatsApp. We don't pay a single penny for it because we're entitled to free now. Yeah. And, and guess what? There's no such thing as a free lunch and there's no such thing as a free app. And, and I think we are doing a disservice as consumers because we are perpetuating this, quite frankly, toxic culture of hiding what you're really doing behind legal jargon and then selling us stuff. And quite frankly, with Facebook, running social experiments on us, you know? And we signed up for that. Yes, we don't understand it. Yes, it's not fair that we don't understand it. But now we also would should demand privacy apps where I'm, I have a right to be forgotten and I will pay five bucks a month for WhatsApp. And I know users are like, I don't want to pay five bucks a month for WhatsApp. Cool. Then at least accept that you're paying with your privacy. Accept yeah. that. And whatever that means, whatever crazy nudges that are going to happen later, we've already seen. And this is still in the infancy, right? This is in the infancy. And we've already seen government changes, right? And of course, you can, we can argue about how much of it was effective and not, but hey, look, they wouldn't be around if both Brexit and it wasn't just Donald Trump. It's easy to point the finger and go, Trump got Cambridge. You know what? Everybody wanted Cambridge. He just probably just paid more for it than everyone else. And you actually go back and you look at Hillary Clinton's campaign, not well managed. I think digital, looking at it digital marketing-wise, I don't want to start Republican versus Democrat, especially in election season. I'm looking at it as a marketer, man, it's, it's just a much better run campaign from a marketing perspective, from like, if you're a strategist, it's just better run and they had better data. And of course they're, they're across a lot more data. So that's a really long winded answer, but I'm so passionate about this stuff. Kurt. And, and it's, and it's part of the, there's a solution in there somewhere that applies to us too, as consumers, not just marketers and philosophers and public policymakers. Yeah. I mean, I mean, actually Cambridge Analytica was actually hired by Ted Cruz's uh, yep. campaign well before Donald Trump. And it wasn't until he, he left the, the, the trail. So, and, and, and Ted Cruz didn't do all that well. So, you know, you, you can look at it from there. And again, that, that it, the effectiveness of this and, and various different pieces, but I think you brought up a really good point. It's that, you know, it's the understanding and knowing, but there's also this part that comes back to us, right? It comes back to our expectations around things. And, and hopefully that as we're moving forward, we're changing some of those expectations or at least understanding the cost of the expectation. So if we, we expect things for free, there is a cost associated with that. Right. And some of those costs can can lead to, to some of the other pieces. Um, so, but with that, I think there's still, you know, it, how do we, and, and this is probably an answer that we, can, yeah, I don't know if we can answer it here or not, but you know, where is the sand in the line? So, so what is it, is there a solid line in, or is it contextually based? And so at some points it's, it's further down, other points it's here. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that, but it's, it's one of the things that Tim and I ponder all the time. Yeah, I think, I think actually what it comes to advanced 
segmentation and, and targeting, which is whether it's through psychographics and, and ocean analysis or not, that's the natural move that marketing is going to make. You always want to go towards more and more and more niche and more and more and more specialized. It's, it's not great business to just send one advertisement on television that 30 million people see in exactly the same way. You want to send something that is as individualized as possible. And that's really the potential that uh, psychographic techniques uh, have the potential of providing. Um, I, I would argue actually that this type of, of granularity actually allows marketers to be more ethical than they've ever been before. Because if we, we truly value consumer autonomy and we truly know everything that we can glean about a person and what's going to appeal to them and what they're going to find value in and what's going to be an emotional driver and what's going to be a, a sort of more rational driver. Uh, mar ethically minded marketers can market via a, a uh, to, to an autonomous state and, and provide advertisements and marketing material, which the person can deliberate over and ruminate over and decide over and, and, uh, reach a decision which will ultimately give their life value and that ultimately gives value to the company and you have a customer that's going to be with you for x amount of years etc cetera, etc cetera. um of course this takes uh you know ethical mindedness on on behalf of marketers to get to that point but now we have the potential for it more than we ever had before if we're just existing in this analog world of sending out mass media advertisements that just are blanket statements we don't know how those are received we don't know if if a given commercial is is driving uh, some some you know untapped knowledge the person has about themselves and whether this you know they perceive it in a, a sort of a strange way and not fully aware of why they're responding to it the way they're responding to it uh, all in all uh, effectively not uh, marketing to autonomous state and so these segmentation and targeting techniques while they do certainly bring up much bigger ethical questions than they do ethical opportunities. I think if if treated through the right lens, actually allows for more ethical marketing that actually exists in in mass media. And I partially agree and I partially disagree. Right, I I, I agree with Matt that it is it is a massive opportunity to actually have what we said earlier, like charm me, I'll charm you. We're going to have a beautiful relationship. Um, I guess where I disagree on is, and I'm, I'm not really disagreeing per se, but I think I think we need to make this utopic place of a ethical North Star reality. And, yeah. and I guess, and that's, you know, I think, I hope most of my branding and marketing professionals feel me on this is you do want to create amazing products, right? We said it before. Um, but, you know, for every example that is, you know, a data-based uh, customization of Nike and Adidas shoes that full-on came from what people wanted and, and they knew people better than arguably people knew themselves. And then there's the face swap stuff, which is your, you yeah. know, you know and, and that's creepy. You know, like you're making me take photos of myself and Matt and I just want to know what my buddy looks like when he's 85 years old. Well, now what I didn't know was now you own a photo that is 85 years old of me and Matt and you can do whatever the hell you want with it, right? And and and, and, and how do you teach that? And I think, and I think that's what, Curtain, uh, you guys are probably thinking. I was like, "Can you give me a line in the sand?" And I think we can start to. We can start to. And I think conversations like these, and you guys are a big part of this, because because you guys are said distributors and 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 uh, aggregators of all this knowledge from all the other parts of the world. And I and I think part of that is you have a very unique role in this. So there's that. The second piece, in terms of a line in the sand, I think culturally, 
and I don't know what the forum would be to have this conversation, but I think culturally, uh, and we'll say nationally to, to, to rid any ambiguity, we have to decide what level of uh, persuasion accuracy we're comfortable with, right? And what may, be, may work for California might not work for Mexico. What may work for UK might not work for France. But that's a conversation we need to have because, uh, and that's what's missing. But ultimately, like I said before, persuasion is an asymptote. How far down that line we as a uh, country, as a state, as, a, as, a, as a what have you is, are comfortable with is a conversation we should have out loud. And then you, you build products around that that meet that and dare I say create laws as well, right? Um, but part of this is, is, is the game. Innovation yeah. and consumers catch up is what I said earlier, but really it's innovation, public policy catches up, you know, and right now, and what have we, what have we gotten over the last 15 years? Uh, generic, we use cookies, right? <laughs> and it's turning into another terms and conditions. Yeah. Okay, cool. We use cookies. Boom, whatever. Um, but it's like, no, we use cookies ethically, right? Like be, yeah. and, and that's one of the things that's, it's a fear. It's a, it's a fear from product designers and brands. It's like, uh, the, the, the average consumer won't understand that this, they might take this as creepy. Fine. Take that initial punch in the face of being creepy, but then talk about how this is inevitable. And here's what we are doing to be beyond ethical. And you can use covert overt and, and explain that. And yes, that's asking a lot. And it's, again, it's utopic, but I think, it's, it's, it's pushing that conversation forward, you know? Um, and, yeah. and at least there's, there's a bit of a foundation for other people to plug in their research and thoughts on it and, and, and get people involved. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point about the conversation. And I think hopefully it's, it's, it's what Tim and I are, are trying to do with a lot of the people that we talk with and bring that conversation to the forefront and really have it. Because if we don't have it, uh, stuff just goes on and it happens. And, and if we aren't thinking about it, talking about it, bringing it to the forefront, uh, that's where it can get can get bad, and hopefully we can we can make that utopia happen. And and I know the utopia that Tim wants to have happen is to talk about music right now. So uh, and, uh, it, it's it. part of the behavioral grooves thing. We we talk music, and you guys mentioned old school hip hop. So I, I I I Tim, you you take it away, man. Uh, so are we talking Grandmaster Flash? Are we talking Busy uh, B Starsky? You know, where are we where are we going with this? Uh, yeah. Tribe Called Quest is as far back as I've thoroughly studied hip hop at my age. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I, I know it's not the only one, you know, but Tribe, Tribe is sort of my classic hip hop where it starts. And of course, there's conscious hip hop now. Plus, uh, by no means, don't limit us to just hip hop. That's just what Matt and I bond off. Of. <laughs> uh, okay. We, okay. We nerd out and, and I've studied music wholeheartedly. And this is a sidebar. You guys want the music. You guys open Pandora's box. <laughs> what has been my Prozac through quarantine? And Matt and I are super social. We like going out a lot and talking to people. And what has been my Prozac has been music. So I've invested in like a, a, a proper hi-fi system. And I'm re-listening to Van Morrison, not brown eyed girl Van Morrison. Uh, the genius that is Van Morrison who hates playing Van uh, Brown Eyed Girl at concerts. And, and I'm hearing new sounds I've never heard before, you know, in old Beatles tracks in old, uh, 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 let's stay together. I could tell the gender of the backup singers. So no, I, you know, it's been, it's been therapeutic and, uh, and yeah, no, we can go hip hop. But we can also, I really want to talk about, Van Morrison being a lot more than Brown Eyed Girl. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've made Tim's day right there. Oh, right on. So. Yeah. And, and certainly more than just uh, the sweetest Tupelo honey. Are you talking about Avalon? Oh, uh, you know, wh uh, wh wh Astro, where are you going? All of those. Astro, all of those. Yeah, yeah I love it. Um, 
it's uh, I, I I got title, which is weird to think about, but uh, it's uh, CD quality or higher with good headphones. You actually pick up a little bit more fidelity, and and I'm sure Matt's gonna jump in and be like, ah, it's perception. Well, perception, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, perception is perception is reality. <laughs> uh, that it is. Okay, what's uh, so your playlist is is sophisticated, uh, Matt? Just give us give us a hint as to what what you're listening to these days. Yeah, yeah. So music's been been big part of my life. Uh, my my dad is a musician. He was a traveling jazz musician uh, for most oh, of his life, nice. and and nice. so my bedtime stories going to sleep was was. Him telling me crazy stories of being out on the road. He's a trumpet player in, in jazz and big bands uh, all up and down the East Coast. So crazy stories of, of playing in, you know, late night clubs and this and that instead of, you know, instead of nursery rhymes at night. It was it was stories of being in jazz clubs and in, in beatnik <laughs> in, in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s. Wow. I guess he's not that old. So. <laughs> wow! What uh, share one with us? You you have to. What, what, is, oh, there, is, there, is there a vivid one? I mean, this is this is putting him juiced, on the spot, man. Yeah, putting oh, him on the spot. Yeah, juice. yeah. Oh man! So he he uh, played for a long time in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, it it may sort of play into some Rhode Island stereotypes, but. Uh, the, the band he was he was the only non-Italian in the band. Everybody else was was mobbed up. And when you are a, a traveling jazz musician, you have to do a lot of weddings. You have to do a lot of weddings. And and so they were playing this wedding, and uh, they, they had come across this piece of information uh, right before the wedding that the the groom had done something you know not so great. Uh, that the kind of violated the constitution of the marriage. Won't go into too specifics there. Um, but now they have this sort of difficult moral question. I mean, do they tell the the bride to be who's also mobbed up? Um, and, and cause conflict there. And now that it's known that they have this piece of information, if they didn't tell, then you, you know, you owe favors and you're in trouble and, and all this stuff. So yeah. uh, I think in the end, they just, uh, they just decided to keep quiet with it. And then they just got out of town the next day and, <laughs> and, and moved on to a, to a new city there. I, I think Providence so, in the, the 1970s was a very interesting place to be. So, so the thing that caught my attention is that Rhode Island actually has uh, stereotypes about it. I didn't, I didn't even know there was such a thing. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, there's some crazy stuff that's gone on in, in yeah, sixties and seventies with the, the the mafia and, and Providence for sure. Yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I I have heard some of that, uh, and Hartford as well. Mm, uh, okay, you know, uh, in Connecticut, I understand that there's some of that. Okay, yeah. But this has been so great. Thank you so much. Thank you, so Thank much, you guys. Robert. Thank you so much. Like I said, your aggregator role is so important in this whole entire conversation. I do want to remind the listeners: Blindsight. Uh, yep. Grab the book. Uh, it's like twelve books in one. And, you, and and if you don't agree with that, once you read it, I'll buy you a beer. And then we also do master classes with a heavy emphasis on ethics. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's our version of a Hippocratic Oath when it comes to neuromarketing. And if that's something you're interested in, please go to popneuro.com, P-O-P-N-E-U-R-O. My name is yeah. Prince Gooman, the marketer, Matt Johnson, the neuroscientist. You can hit us up on uh, LinkedIn. You'll probably find a lot more Matt Johnson than Prince Gooman, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, get you, I'll get you hooked up with Matt as needed. But thank you guys for listening. And, and Tim and Kurt, thank you guys again for having us. Hey, we, we are so happy to have you on and, and thank you for everything. And yeah, listeners, go out and check that out. All right. Take care. Guys. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Matt and Prince, have a free flowing discussion and talk about whatever else comes into our 
flirtatious marketing minds. Ooh, our flirtatious marketing minds. Well, you know, Prince talked about this idea that that marketers are really um, call flirt flirting, or flirting with the customer, getting them to want to fall in love with the product. Ah, yeah, yeah, he see, did. See where I was going with that? <laughs> so, okay, it's yeah, I do. Yeah, thank you for explaining it. So, so I know I have to explain some of these things sometimes because because <laughs> I'm not that. No, not anything for you, just because they're so weird in my own brain. Anyway, well, it's a it's a cool idea, right? Because he, I like the idea that. As a marketer, he's his belief is that marketers want to create amazing products, mm-hmm. and that consumers uh, want to fall in love with products. and And I think that to some degree, that's I don't think that that's universal, but I think that to some degree, that that's very true. and And I thought that that was a really cool concept to bring up. Well, and I think it's a nice north star for for marketers, right? It is this ideal of what could happen. So this idea of creating these products that you want your consumers to fall in love with and using behavioral science in order to help with that. And I think that's a that's a wonderful, positive way of thinking about this. But to your point, I don't know how much you want to fall in love with your pencil or fall in love with your paperweight um, or your clip. Although I, I think there's probably... Love may not be the right word, but I think there's probably a continuum, right? Yeah, certainly there is. There, there probably there's probably some way of thinking about products like Apple or or the watch builder Breitling or or the automobile maker Porsche, right? They're premium products where they want to build amazing products. Where part of their differentiation is have someone fall in love with those those products. But as you said, pencils or even you know, paperweights, probably not. So maybe, maybe the continuum has to do with being a, a highly hedonic product on, on one end. The, and those are the products that people would, would want to fall in love with, that they want to be connected to. If there's a high aspect of luxury, by the way, I did say hedonic, not hedonistic. We're not, we're not pitching the, the resort in Jamaica. That's not. <laughs> oh man. That, that, that is a good product though. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know, but I'm assuming it's a good product. Uh, but that's the hedonic side. And then the opposite side would, would probably be a utilitarian side where we're just buying stuff just because, well, it's maybe more consumable and we just need to get through it. And I mean, I, I, I bought a, a $2.99 back scratcher and I, I'm not in love with the product, but it was $2.99. If it breaks, I'm, it, it's not going to break my heart. That's for sure. So, and again, maybe we're we're overemphasizing the the term love because as I'm thinking about this now too, I'm just like looking like pens. I have a very distinctive pen that I like to use, wow. and I will buy a certain type of pen versus other pens because I've grown to like them and use them in in a way when I'm journaling and when I'm writing in my notes. And pencils, I think probably people have, maybe some people have a certain preference for pencils. So I think there might be differences in in individuals yeah. about that, that utilitarian versus hedonic scale and what what is a hedonic product for them versus what is a utilitarian product for them. 
and and I and I'm thinking too about some of the design aspects that you're seeing, even from paper clips and other things, where now they're not just functional, but they're designed to look cool and to signal and to create a desire that you can do. Now, are marketers doing that because they can they can price those at a premium and get a higher profit margin on them? Or are they doing them because they're going, we want our customers to fall in love with those? I don't know. I mean, you talked about, we, 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 before the episode, we were talking about mattresses with this, right? Oh, right. Because you went through this process of buying a mattress recently. Yeah. So my son, who's 14, got him a new bed. He got out of, he outgrew his little, you know, single bunk bed. He's um, almost six feet now. And so he, he needed a bigger bed. So we got him a new bed. And in the buying of the bed, we had to get a new mattress and he researched mattresses and and he really wanted a purple mattress. He came back and had all of this research that he had done. And it was from the advertising and marketing from purple talking about how they have the science of sleep and all of these things. And he came in with these, you know, purple has this and it'll help me do this and it all, and it's all was from the advertising. And I'm sitting there going, they're damn expensive. And I was, I was like, oh, and you're going you're gonna to be sleeping on this mattress for another four years. That's it. It's not going off to college with you. It's going to probably stay here. And then it's not going to get used. And, you know, is there is, is the difference of four to $600 in the cost of a medium? Actually, I mean, purple probably isn't even at the high end of some of these, but it's at yeah. the... Asper and Satva and Nola. Well, I mean, there's there's mattresses that are, you know... Um, sleep number and, and and other CERTA and all those that some high-end ones that are four or $5,000, you know, that you just sit there and go, ah, that's what I paid for my first car, you know? <laughs> You're dating yourself, dad. <laughs> I am. I am. But, but even from that perspective, you know, you can go to Ikea and get a mattress for two, $300. Right. And so are you pay, paying 12, 13, $1,400 for a mattress when you can get one for, Two three hundred dollars now. How good is that? Uh, you know the quality. But again, we went. We were at Macy's showroom, and we we tried out the purple mattress, laying on it for a couple minutes. Versus, I don't know some of these others. And yeah, they're nice. Are they six hundred dollars nicer than the next level? I don't know. He's going to be on it every night for the next four years. Yeah, but see, I, that's 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 gotta, it. You know, I have to give a shout out to your son for doing the research. For, for making a pitch. I think that that's pretty cool. And he did make a pitch. He, he made a whole, I mean, you know, he came in and had the whole thing. So okay. I don't know. But back to, that was an interesting rabbit hole. But back <laughs> to, yeah. is he going to fall in love with the product that you got? I, I don't know. And, and I don't know if he's going to fall in love with it now because he was so set on getting a purple and we didn't get him a purple. No. We got him a nice mattress. I mean, it wasn't the 250 ikea mattress but it was a 700 dollars mattress and it's pretty damn nice it's nicer than my mattress you know in your eyes in my eyes but his eyes it, it, he was anchored in on At getting a purple so anything even if it was exactly the same experience he's experiencing it differently because of his expectations around things 
Yeah. So I wanted to go down to this interesting, you know, go off a tangent here. So I apologize for people, but, you know, Prince was talking about applying behavioral science and neuroscience into this idea of marketing and creating these amazing products, right. For, and, and having your, your customers fall in love with these products. Can, can the same thing be said about companies trying to create amazing employee experiences? And how do we get employees to fall in love with the company? Can we use behavioral science in order to help achieve that, to flirt with our employees? That sounded really bad because um, we don't want to do that. How about if, if, if we port the idea of uh, marketers wanting brand advocates right, for their brand, uh, if we take that into the employer realm and we say, what about if we, if we have the define and defend model from uh, a portion of the four drive model from uh, Lawrence and Aria. And we, and we say, we want employees who are going to defend the company. We want employees who are, who are company advocates out there. And, and the way to do that is to create a culture that is so engaging that the quality of work that they do and the kind of support that they get and the kind of recognition that they get is so um, infectious that that they want to defend it. That would be that would be really cool. And I think that there are companies that do that. And, and do you think? Do you think? And I, I'm leading the witness here, so I apologize. Oh, do you think yeah. that behavioral science can help in that, and how so? Behavioral science, it's because it's getting to the why we do what we do. Let's use that to build to create that culture. In, in, a, in a corporate environment that gets to uh, satisfying not just our motivations, but our desires. Mm. And, and that's the work that, that you do, right? That's, that's some of the work that you do with, with companies when you're working with them is help them. And I love this concept of, of creating this employee experience that they are going to so love that they become advocates yeah, and you now have a workforce that is not just there for a paycheck, but they're there because they love the work and the company and the culture and everything that goes with it. And that is the things that I think you're trying to do. I know it's some of the stuff that I'm trying to do. We, well, we we worked on a project together earlier this uh, the, this year. Uh, with with a client where we talked to a lot of salespeople who said, I know that I could make not just like 5% more, but I could make 30 or 40% more income by going to another company. I'm staying here because of the culture. Yeah. That, that's a level of brand advocacy, ab, brand advocacy or customer or employee experience and employee advocacy. That is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you think about that, that's through the work that the company did about how they treat their employees, what they're doing. And again, we worked with them, we've been working with them for a long time on applying some of these behavioral science principles yeah. into what they're doing. Not saying that's the, there's not a necessarily a, a one-to-one causal relationship there, but no, I it's think a correlation that. What you're saying is that because of your work with them, that's why the employee. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Enough of our own yeah. tooting our own horns. What else, what, what else did you find interesting with our conversation? Well, the Kiki and Booba stuff was fun. It, it was just, it was just delightful, right? Because it's one of our fun topics, and it reminded me of 
uh, how each language starts to develop, right? Language isn't just created out of thin air. I mean, people create words for specific purposes. And we have words like, like buzzsaw or slap or bam, you know, in the English language that, uh, that sound like the words that, um, that they that sound like the things that they are, right? What's that called? Onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia. Yeah, onomatopoeia. And, and so I was thinking that from a mid-liminal marketing perspective, we have words, we have things that, that do that. We have words that cue up, that buzzsaw without even, but just by saying the word, I should say, just by saying buzzsaw, we are getting a feel for what that is happening there because buzz. Well, and I think the sound of the word is, is teeing that up and it's appealing to a part of our brain that is not just about cognitive verbal processing. We're processing the sound as well. Well, Matt brought this up. He said, you know, the idea behind Kiki and Booba is, you know, for a long time, we thought language was taught that we learned language that you were taught that your hand is called a hand mm-hmm. that you, you, if you didn't know that, or if you were in a different, you know, country that had spoke a different language, that would be something else. But there is a concept here that comes with Kiki and Booba and some of this onomatopoeia. Did I say that right? All right. The idea that there's an intrinsic element within the words, some of the words that we use that goes beyond learning, that it's, that it's instinctual within us. And that tapping into that can be powerful. So the idea of that is really kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, and, and the fact that Kiki and Booba is a, is an international phenomenon across language. We say bark or woof to, to express what the sound of a dog is, uh, what kind of sound they make. And in German, the word is schuss and schuss, you know, that's a, Again, there's that onomatopoeia. There's that sense of shoos, like you can kind of hear the sound of a dog in that, even though it's it. Well, I mean, that's what the Germans chose to. to well, isn't is I think French is arf, right? Yeah. So there's yeah, arf, arf, arf. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I don't get the shoos one, but maybe the you know the arf one I hear. My ears are bad though. Okay, there we go. On. Okay, so we we should probably move on. What? <laughs> What else? <laughs> well, we always talk ethics. I mean, not always. We don't always talk ethics, but when we do, we, we talk, talk ethics, yeah. right? And and this, I think, was a key piece that they were trying to bring up. I think it's a key piece, particularly as it relates to applying behavioral science and neuroscience to marketing, because that, along with employee engagement in my mind are the two areas where the intersection between behavioral science and those two realms has the potential biggest impact for ethical considerations that you can push things to a limit that you can't necessarily do in some other kind of realms yeah marketing is is particularly um, vulnerable to bad actors in that regard. And the great thing that, that I took away from our conversation with Matt and Prince is that they are extremely well-intended guys, that they are very focused on doing the right thing 
of being ethical, of making ethical applications. And I just want to acknowledge that because um, that's not always the case. Right. And now, I mean, Cass Sunstein, who, you know, famously co-authored Nudge along with, with uh, Nobel laureate Richard Thaler, talks about ethics a lot. This is one of his big pieces. And so hopefully we'll get him on the show and we can talk to him about this. But he brings in, you know, this element, of this guide for ethical choice uh, in, in choice architecture. Right. Where he's talking about making sure that we create uh, products that don't confuse or marketing things that confuse, that we provide autonomy, dignity, stay away from manipulation, um, all yeah. of these aspects of this. Yeah, exactly. Those are those are really fundamentals, and and I think Matt and and Prince actually uh, addressed a couple of those in in our conversation when we when we talked about give us an example of of the ethical use. You know, the autonomous decision making was you know was a key part of it, right? Um, and and so I was I was glad I was glad to hear them say that. The one the one question that I did have though is about about Prince's comment about the geographic. Uh, variety or the potential for applications varying from one country to another, one culture to another. And I think about an experience of a large uh, manufacturer of medical devices uh, bought a company that's based in the US and they bought a company in uh, Italy that also did a lot of business in the Middle East. And the the US-based company said bribery is wrong. It's We think that that's unethical. However, the Italian firm that they bought said, well, you know, in order to do business in the Middle East, that's the social norm. Bribery is just part of how we do business there. And the U.S. manufacturer, the U.S. Uh, mothership said, no, we're just going to stop that. And uh, because this is, we're going we're gonna to run by our standards, the U.S. standards, regardless of, of how culturally variable it might be. And, and uh, we were talking about it earlier, but I, th- I think you're right, Kurt, that that probably hurt them. It had to hurt them in the short run. And, and that's where it comes into ethics, right? If everything was, if it would have been a no-brainer, then it's not really a necessarily an ethical, <laughs> where you don't have a dilemma that you have to choose between what you think is good and, and what may not be so good. I, I, yeah, it's an interesting piece. And I, I try to bring that back down to the personal level, right? So I have a personal belief that lying is wrong, right? That I shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, but if I'm in a culture where lies are accepted and it's kind of the norm that you you do these things, and maybe this isn't a bad bad analogy, I don't know. Do do I then say it's all right to lie in the situation because everybody else is doing it, or do I hold self hold true to that self? And that's kind of what this company that you were talking about is going through, and and so. Are ethics different in different regions of the world? And and is that okay? And I don't think, I don't know, I have a hard time with that. I, I, I think there's probably a, a and, and I don't want to say that there is a magical line in the sand that holds true across all the world, because I think context, context matters, as we've talked about multiple times. But I, I, I do think that there may be a floor. And that floor is such that, you know, you don't want to go there. If there's, you know, misogyny and, and uh, 
as you said, bribery and all these other things, and that's the norm in a culture or a company. Is that ethical from a perspective of, of doing that? And that's a much bigger perspective or beyond behavioral science and various different pieces. We need to tackle that probably in, a, in an episode unto itself, because we need to talk about the ontological differences between different models, utilitarian, utilitarianism versus uh, a situationalism. And there's different ethical approaches that would be worth sussing out, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the, all the moral foundations between all of the stuff that you get into. So that that's really cool. On that, right, I think then, you know, anything else that you wanted to talk about? Oh, well, I, I have a question for you. Uh, something that... Is it is it about music? It does. It happens to be about music. Imagine, imagine that you would ask me a question about music. I have this prescient ability to foresee the future. Wow. <laughs> it's just, a, there's a look in your face actually when you want to start talking about music. It just, your face lights up. It is literally, it's I can see stuff. it. It's been three years now and I'm, I've, I've recognized that look on your face. And that, you get that, excited. That look is not anxiety. It's, it's <laughs> right anticipation. But uh, <laughs> so Prince talked about digging into hip hop and classic rock, digging okay. like this idea of really exploring. And I love this, this idea. And I wanted to ask you, have you ever, have you, well, let's just say in recent years, have you said, oh, you know, I like the sound of that. I'm going to dig more into that genre to learn more about the artists in that, you know, that are playing that style of music. That's a good question. Digging in. What does digging in mean? What do we, how, how would I define that? I have dug into certain artists. So okay. for sure. So I've, I've, I've done, you know, newer artists that I've come across yeah. or cash, um, Seawolf, you know, some of these that I've talked about before, mm. um, less so on the genre and partly because I think some of my music is not necessarily definitive genre, right? It's a softer, folkier, uh, indie kind of rock thing that doesn't yeah. have a hard set. It's not hip hop. It is not, you know, some very distinctive. However, I will go back to when we were up at the cabin and I gave you the history lesson of ministry and, and the industrial music there. So I've done that in the past. So I, I would argue that like getting into Flora Cash or Seawolf or Iron and Wine or Angus and Julia Stone, that you are diving into Americana. Oh, that's that's what I, I would suggest that you may not be aware of it, but the way that you just talked about this, you know, slightly laid back folky vibe, that's really core to Americana and that you actually are digging into. But I'm not digging into because I'm not going back to the roots of Americana. Oh, right. I mean, enough. if I was digging in, that's right. Wouldn't I be going back and further exploring some of the influences of these people and how they got there, and and probably some of the stuff that you could teach me? <laughs> well, I just thought it was curious, and and I think and I I would agree with you that uh, that while you're expanding your musical vocabulary within Americana, you're not necessarily digging into the foundations of it. So, right. What about you? Are you digging into different genres? I mean, you kind of really get into music. I have over the, in the, in years past, I remember in, uh, in high school, in fact, the, um, my German teacher in high school 
was Father Kesterer, and he passed away recently. He was 90 years old, and he was uh, not just a German teacher, but he was also an accomplished piano player, and he introduced me to Debussy, and, um, who is a, a, a French romantic um, composer, and I had not gotten into the romantics at all. It really about Beethoven is marked as sort of the beginning of the romantics, but um, or sometimes, but I was surprised to really dig into the romantic uh, composers at that point in my life. And then, you know, country, you know, you, if you're going to, if you're going to get into country, you got to get back to Hank Williams and, you know, the kind of the, the, the start of all that. And if you're going to get into jazz, you're going to have to go back to New Orleans and, and you know, look at the the sort of the roots of ragtime and blues. And if you're going to get into blues, you're going to have to go back to the roots of of uh, African rhythms and um, early slave songs. And and yeah, I have done that, and I and I love that. I find that really enriching and rewarding. So so when you talk about romantics, it's not the '80s, you know, no new age band. <laughs> what I yeah. like about you, I could I I I, I knew that one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, with that, folks, um, hang on, because there is a bonus track that we'll be talking about in just a minute. Hey, Groovers, this is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for this episode with Prince and Matt. Clearly, these two authors and teachers are passionate about the ethical implications of applying neuroscience to marketing. They focused on two key approaches. First, to be overt rather than covert. And the second is to be aware of the deliberate capacity of your target audience. The overt versus covert part is to ensure consumers are aware of the factors that are influencing their decisions. And the deliberative capacity part, well, that speaks to someone's ability to properly consider the decision that they're being asked to make. And we also discussed the idea of mid-liminal influence, the idea that we can influence behaviors with messages that are, as they say, in plain sight. For your groove idea for this week, we want you to look at stuff around your home and office. How did you choose those things? And more importantly, why did you choose those brands? Give some consideration to some of the brand advertising that got your attention enough for you to consider choosing those brands. What could have influenced you? Were you aware of making that decision? Were you clear on the exchange that you were making with the brand when you made that purchase? Well, that's it for this episode, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Matt and Prince. Now, we hope you go out and find your groove this week. 